0: Genesis 2 verse 4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Welcome to Walking Through the Book. I'm Stephen McCrary, and with me is Bryant Bales, and we want to talk to you about the Bible. We want to talk to you about, specifically, Genesis chapter 2 today, and uh, we want to emphasize again why we're here. Uh, how are you doing
1: today, Bryant? Doing very, very, very well. Everything everything going pretty well? Yes, sir. Yep, yep, yeah. Yeah. Uh... By the grace of God everything uh, today has been well uh, healthy and uh, have a working mind and uh, ready to ready to discuss the scripture. Okay um, we want to uh, give you
0: some contact information to get us uh, get in touch with us. If you want to email us, we're walking through the book at protonmail.com walking through the book at protonmail.com. And, uh, if you want to reach us through that, you can. Um, uh, we are thinking about getting on Facebook pretty soon. Uh, I may have to edit this later on to, to get that on there. Um, but we'll, we want to try to have different methods whereby you can contact us so that you can get in touch with us and let us know what you think about the podcast, as well as give us some some of your questions and some of your concerns. Maybe there's something that we're doing that is uh, you know off the charts. Maybe there's something that, that we could be doing better. Uh, maybe you have a suggestion that we could do, be doing better with something. Uh, or if you just simply have uh, a concern about what we believe or what we're trying to teach here, uh, we want to h- help answer that that we want to uh, i mean even if the question is big enough we may even have a whole episode where we go through uh, uh listener questions but that's just an idea For the time being, we want to focus on uh, Genesis chapter 2. We want to remember the purpose of this podcast. We're here to show forth the glory of God. We want to make sure that we're impressing upon you the importance of reading your Bible, and not just reading it, but appreciating it, studying it, spending time with it, so that it can properly uh, manifest in your heart, uh, in your soul, so that your actions— become more molded toward the image of God that uh, that we were created in and that's at least partially what we're going to be speaking of today. Uh, as per our typical thing, we're going to read through the whole text. We're going to make some initial observations. Then we're going to talk about the theme of what's going on in Genesis 2 and then finally make application to our lives so that we can actually profit from it.
1: Initial. Genesis chapter 2, I'm going to be reading out of the New King James translation, starting in verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth, and all the host of them, were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being." The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is... Pishon; It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and the onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, and it is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hedekel, It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river wow. is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed.
0: In terms of initial observations, uh, Brian, what are some things that kind of pop out at you in this reading?
1: Well, it's kind of interesting that uh, there's one day that God slows down to really give details about. Um, It seems like there's an implication that each day had a lot that went into it that's not expounded on. But the significance of this day is this relates to God's care for man, and the things that he did with man uh, that relate back to what it means to be in his image. Um, and of course, God's focus is, is on man through the whole scripture. So I don't think it's any accident, obviously, that it's the sixth day that we kind of slow down to consider in more detail. Absolutely. And, you know,
0: it's interesting that you mention that too, because doesn't that tell us or show us that uh, this is a point where we're going back to get more details about something. Right. You know, the Bible kind of shows itself as a different book in that aspect because it's not just boom, 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 chronological. It's going to go back in some places and say, oh, by the way, when this happened, there's a little bit more to that. Yeah, And I think we need to recognize and think about that in the standpoint that, you know, you think about the writing, the ways they would have, Written these things, right. they wouldn't have been able to particularly go back and edit and change the justification digitally and all. You know, um, but even then, even considering whatever limitations they might have had in, in in putting this together, whatever limitations Moses might have had compared to what we can do today, uh, I think we can appreciate that this is in a particular order for a reason because if we if we understand that the spirit inspired these things that that's a particular order
1: to it so i appreciate that yeah and it kind of seems like it gives a really a context for the bible and the focus of the scripture that god with all the things he created in day 1 the things we might be curious about what he wants us to see intimately and what he wants us to meditate on and understand is his relationship with his man that he's created the relationship between man and woman and the relationship that God has with man, that's his focus. You know, a couple of things that uh, um, I put
0: down on, on your place on the show notes here, but, you know, obviously the first few verses, he's taking a particular day and blessing it. This is almost a, sort of a, a holdover or a spillover from chapter one because we. He talks about in verses 2 and 3, the seventh day or the Sabbath day. And he blesses that day. Um, it says in verse 3, he blessed it and sanctified it. And the reason is because he rested. That's interesting, interesting to me. Um, and I think we can uh, kind of pull a little bit more out of this later on. But, you know, I, I just kind of want to ask the question did God have to rest? Was, was he literally tired? Was he expended upon the work of creation? I, I, can't, I can't really imagine that. Uh, all the ways that we're presented with God's eternal power and the nature of that power all throughout the scriptures. Um, but he does this for a particular purpose. And uh, maybe over the course of this, this episode, we can kind of talk a little bit about that uh, a little bit more.
1: Um, but do you have any initial thoughts about that, Brian? Yeah, did you notice that uh, in the previous chapter, every day ended with it saying there was a beginning, or not beginning, there was uh, a morning and an evening, or evening and morning, and then it names the day? Uh, the seventh day in chapter 2, verse 3, has no end. And I think that's actually very significant because it seems like there's a theme in the Bible that, the goal is to get into that rest, the perpetual rest that never ends. So the seventh day actually never ends and is always available. And God's goal is to get us in that day perpetually, which is his eternal rest. Wow. So are we deists now? Or
0: are we saying that God, you know, God put together creation, wound it up like a clock and then just let it go and doesn't do anything to intervene into creation? I, you know i, I wouldn't go the, that far of course but um uh I, I think certainly with the work of creation the work of creation is done um there's nothing else for him to do in terms of, of creation it's complete and it's total um and so anyway we, we, we can talk more about that uh as time goes on um you know this is not I think one of the things we have to recognize, too, is some people kind of look at chapter two as like just a different story entirely. But I think we've already kind of covered the fact that this is going back and looking at more details. But one question I have, just one of the things that always pop out at me in this chapter, why is he so specific about the rivers in verses 10 through 14? Um, What kind of, uh, and maybe this kind of could come from some of your studies, Bryant, uh, you know. Is is he just giving us a reference for where the Garden of Eden was? Because I think if if we knew the exact location, everybody would be looking for it. Everybody would be, you know, trying to find where that is and even trying to enter there. You you, you got nothing? Oh, yeah. um. Oh,
1: yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I think you're right that you know there's there's a reason why you know God doesn't say you know hey Eden and these rivers were like in this exact precise longitude and la- uh, what is it longitude and latitude uh, there is I think a point to this that's uh, very focused on a very specific purpose it seems like and this is just me kind of thinking out loud which I think I'll probably end up doing quite a bit as we study but. It seems to imply that Eden was in an elevated location because for the river to ascend downward seems to imply that. But then water, you know, really is associated with giving life. And then it talks about like all these valuable things that follow this river as it goes downward. And so it's almost like from Eden came a river of life that gave life to the things that uh, were near it. So I think that's just kind of interesting maybe to, to think about. That's uh, that's a fantastic point. That's absolutely
0: something that we need to keep in mind uh, as we go through the scriptures because, you know, this is something that God has established. We've established this is good. This is what he wants. This is the order that he wants. Um, and and we're going to see in the next chapter, of course, where that order begins to, to break down. Um, and it's not because God made it so. Uh, again, it's because of, of man's free will choice that he he brought that down. But, uh, but you know, there, there's the stuff that we see in Revelation about New Jerusalem. There's a lot to pull together there, I think. Uh, you, you mentioned a river of life. That's what's talked about in New Jerusalem. The river of life is there. A the tree of life is there. Um, so, anyway, we don't have to go... Uh, uh, Super specific into this now one other quick observation I think I need to make is in verse twenty five uh, the man and his wife were naked and they were not ashamed. Um, that obviously is something that we deal with today that nakedness is a shame and we'll talk more about that next uh, I believe in the next chapter but um but I think we can see. That because of this, we can recognize Adam and Eve were perfect, again, as they were created. God doesn't create something that's, that's wrong or evil. Uh, God doesn't create something that's um, going to be uh, um, impacted or, or wicked in, in and of itself. Um, and so we recognize that they're not ashamed about where they are and what they are and who they are because they're perfect. Uh, I mean, would that be would that be yeah, right, Brian I think that's I mean- a necessary implication. So when we get into the theme of this chapter, you know, looking sort of at the, maybe at a bigger picture view of what's going on, and maybe we've tapped into some of that, um, but let's talk about some of the things that were, or here, and I, I, think what we could really pull together here is that all of this was done for what reason, um, in, in the sense, of course, it glorifies God, and that's really the main sense of it all. But I'd like for us to think about what this does for Adam and what this does for, for mankind, you might say. Um, of course, the most obvious thing is, the first thing is that life was given to Adam. In verse 7, the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living being. Uh, the fact that he was given not just something physical, but I think we have to recognize that he he is given something spiritual here. Um, because if we take this and we we think about the fact that he also was made in the image of God, God has a spirit, and so Adam has a spiritual quality to him, even though he is uh, made of dust. He's made of something physical. He's made of dust, and and we see that in nature. We see that in life. What happens when we die? Our bodies decay into dust, you know, and go back to the the base forms that uh, you know, carbon base form. You might even say, uh, if if you're into sci-fi or something, that uh, that 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 life is given to us for that purpose, um, and obviously. God gave this life for a reason. Um, he gave a, He gave not just that life, he gave a place for Adam. He put him in a place that sounds really amazing. Sounds like a very, very good place. Um, gave them everything that, that they could ever want, really, ultimately. Um, plants this garden and makes every tree... In verse 9, every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Again, this idea of abundance, this idea of goodness being brought forth for Adam, a place for him to live. And
1: even beyond that, he gives him a purpose. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, verse 7, um, you know, what What man, I guess the shell, the shell of what man was made of, and what gave him life are two distinctly separate things. Uh, and I think that's that's interesting, you know, because Deuteronomy says something in the instructions to Israel, the second generation that Jesus quoted, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And I believe it's 2 Timothy 3.16 where it says, all scripture is God breathed. And so I think we kind of have another context. You know, Genesis just gives so much context to who God is and everything in the Bible, you know, even very early on. And I think that verse 7 is is very significant because it shows that from the inner being of God, God gave life to the inner being of man. And so where does life come from? What connects us to life? Well, it's the inner being of God that gives us life. Absolutely. So the foundational aspect of life
0: as far as why are we here? What are you know? What uh, what is it that is within us that causes us to continue to be able to breathe? You know, uh, you know, scientists could could easily say, well, you know, you've got you got this cell doing this and this cell doing that, and um, and you can look at. And I think we see more and more beauty uh, the closer we look at at every all of God's creation, the more beauty we see. Um, And the interesting distinction is everything that's made by man, uh, you can look at, and of course, I'm sure they're trying, you know, they say that, you know, computers do things exactly, you know, digital reproduction, like 3D printing and things like that. But even with 3D printing, if you look very closely at a microscope with these forms, you know at these things that we make, like you look at the pinpoint of a needle, you're still going to see imperfections. You're going to see some problems, but you look at a flower, you look at the, um, you look at the, the, the thing of, you know, the, the, the basic cells of our body, the closer you get into that, the more beautiful things become. It's not that things become less beautiful. And so, uh, you know, there's beauty in all this, so he's given life to Adam. He's given a place. He's he he's got a purpose for Adam. Uh, you know what's the purpose that he talks about in uh, verse fifteen? What's the purpose that God gives Adam? Yeah, to tend the garden. Absolutely. And keep it. So he's got he's got this sense where he's got work to do. He's not just meant to sit there and just laze around all day. He he's meant to actually be productive to some degree. He's there to tend the garden
1: and to keep it, yeah, can, to take care of it. i going to interject something in there, too. It's interesting that in chapter 2, God is only referred to as Lord God. And in chapter 2, the oh, wow. uh, description of Lord isn't in chapter 2, but, it, I mean, isn't in chapter 1, I mean, in the creation order. And doesn't it make sense, though, that God would be referred to as Lord God in chapter 2? Because he's looking more closely at the relationship between himself and his creation his man and then of course in verse 16 you know the lord god commanded the man and so i I think it's very very fascinating that that becomes the way god is described in chapter two is the lord god um you know not to get too far ahead but just to maybe uh plant something down that we can come back to lord willing in our next study uh satan when satan speaks does not refer to god as the lord god and I think that's a really subtle way of disconnecting an important aspect of the relationship that God created man to have with him. He's not, <laughs> interesting
0: thing, he's not really a part of the kingdom, is he? Right. You know, uh, to be a part of the kingdom, you've got to accept the rule of God in your heart. And uh, and so you make an awesome point there. The idea of the Lord God, he is Lord of my life. He is the controller of what I do. Um, And, you know, Adam Adam seems to at least initially here accept that. And he has this relationship with God. And we're going to see some more fruit of that relationship, um, fruit, no (laughs) pun
1: intended, in the next next chapter. uh, You mentioned, Uh, you know, fruit and and life being a theme here. I think you can really see that God – there's so much grace. You know, grace is just pouring out of this chapter because not only was chapter 1 – all for the sake of creating man. And we obviously know all the pain and long-suffering God knew he would need to endure because of his creation. But in chapter 2, you know, God, everything that he did, all the beauty, all the life, all the plants, all the herbs, and creating the woman for man, he set man on, this, on the highest position in his creation— and gave him life, and he gave it to him abundantly. You know, he didn't design man with this incredible struggle at every turn. Uh, and I think that relates to Jesus. When Jesus came, being the the life of God himself, and he said, I've not come, or he says, I have come to give them life and to give it to them more abundantly. Uh, and that's what we see that God can do and desires, is that we have abundant life. Um, and the scriptures help us understand, you know, what that really means. But I just think that's interesting as well, just how much grace is involved in the way that God purposely set, set man up here in this chapter. Absolutely. And we're
0: going to get back to that in the application section as well. Uh, very well said. You know, one of the important thing I think this is one of the core things we got to notice about this relationship is that in verses 16 and 17, God establishes boundaries for Adam. And uh one of the things that we have to recognize about life is that boundaries help us help make us safe. Um, that's what God's doing. If God had set Adam up here and said, "You know, you just do whatever you want, you know um what does that do well it it probably would have enabled Adam to do some things that maybe might not have been good for him um, but I think overall, we see that God is doing this for establishing these boundaries for the sake of his love for him. And I think, again, this goes back to grace. Um, And I think we see that in life. Again, we see this so much. Children, for example, children need boundaries to feel safe. Um, If you let a child just do whatever they want to and make up the rules as you go along, they're not going to feel safe. They're not going to feel provided for. Uh, They're not going to feel like, like everything's okay. And that they know what to expect. There's a number of angles on that, but I think it's such, so, so awesome that he says plainly, you know, you, you can eat of whatever tree that you want, but this tree, you're not going to eat of that tree. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Again, this is, setting up seeds for the next chapter where we see sort of the fallout of this. Uh, But let's understand as well that the boundaries that God has established did not cause what's going to happen. And again, I'm just, I'm talking about that. I think everybody knows anybody who's listening knows what's going to happen. I think um, in, in the fall of man, if you don't, then please listen on (laughs) and, uh, and and read on uh, in between now and then. But he establishes these boundaries, and I think that must have helped Adam to feel safe. Um, it would—it it was something that was good for him, something that's keeping him away from things that would would hurt him initially. And anyway, there, there's a lot more there that I think we probably should wait and get into the next uh, the next episode. But it, do you have anything?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, I think you know when you're dealing with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, I think a question, a good question, I don't think it's a bad question. Um, Why did God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden? Uh, I think that's a necessary question to think about. And I'll tell you that I think that tree, it was impossible for it not to be there because God created man in his image. What we're learning in Genesis 2 is through man who God is. And to be in the image of God requires the subjection of passions and self-denial for the sake of honoring another's wishes. That's the story of the Bible, of what God does with man. Now here's the clincher, is God is worthy of that honor and we are not? And God through the scriptures subjects his strongest passions to bless us and to honor us so that we benefit from his self-control. Uh, So you think about Jesus and the passion of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's the passion God feels because of sin all the time. And yet, we'll see that God humbles himself to talk with Cain who murdered his brother Abel. And that's incredible. But that's what we see is God, God hides the difficulty he feels in subjecting these great passions so that we can be blessed. And so it's impossible that God could create man in his image without there being some way that man could learn to subject their passions. He even tells that to Cain in chapter four, that sin lies crouching at the door, but you must learn to master it. That is the image of God. And even on top of that, you think of Moses. Uh, God said, I'm gonna destroy this nation and make a new nation through you. Moses appealed to God to instead show mercy, and God did. Now, I think both of those were good options, but God chose what he deemed to be the greater option to honor Moses and that nation. Um, And the thing is, God does that for our benefit. So I think the subjection of passions we see in this is necessary, that we need to learn to subject our passions so that we can honor God and honor others. But responsibility, grave responsibility. You know, God created us to be able to handle grave responsibility. So he told this to Adam, who then needed to communicate this to his wife, which it appears that he did in chapter 3. But then he brought the animals to Adam, as well, so that he could name them. That's a lot of responsibility, but God designed us to be responsible because he's responsible. And especially with his word and responsibility with consequences, especially as they can affect ourselves and others. So Adam was told very clearly that he's going to die in the very day that he violates this command. And God understands that for himself, that if God acts outside the best interest of us as is good... There are serious—I can't even imagine. Like, imagine if Jesus would have called 10,000 angels when he was going to the cross. I don't know if he would have to, like, cause everything to cease to exist and start from scratch. And by that, I mean even the angels and every being that has observed God's predestined purpose that he was working to fulfill. I don't know. But we don't need to think too hard about that because we see that God always acts in consistent faithfulness. He's always acting in the same kind of way and never breaches that. And I very freely breach God's image, but God holds back the full measure of consequence to that. And so I think we'll see in chapter three, Lord willing, that there are more consequences to this than God needed to communicate, which should encourage us to subject our passions and learn the kind of responsibility that God designed us to have. That's an awesome lesson because
0: uh, so often what people are missing from this equation, you know, why shouldn't I embrace whatever I want to? Why shouldn't I take on any desire I want to? The world's your oyster. I mean, especially if you're a young person, I've even heard people who call themselves Christians say, well, a young person's got to sow their wild oats. I, I don't see any benefit to that thought process at all. And what they're missing out on is that, we have to control ourselves, and you, you, you've you just said it. We have to control ourselves because God controls him, himself. He establishes boundaries not just on us. He establishes boundaries on himself, and he works and acts within those boundaries. Right. And if he That's did, the covenant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and if he did not act within those boundaries, how terrible would things be? And you, I, I think you, you make an awesome point there. So very well said. Now, the last aspect, I think, of this is the creation of a helpmeet for Adam. And uh, that is such a beautiful thing. I think we need to recognize that beauty, that uh, here we have the institution of marriage established. Uh, you uh, You have Adam who's naming all these animals, but there's nobody like him that he can really properly associate with. One of the things we need to make clear is that is this... Adam just kind of kicking his feet around and saying, "Mm, I can't really find anybody that's like me. Or is this the Lord himself declaring this? I mean, you, you look at verse 18, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. So God doesn't bring about the creation of Eve because he sees that Adam's lonely and he's just, you know, down and out kind of deal. God of his own will he says i'm going to make him a helper that's comparable to him um i'm going to take this i'm going to give give this uh give this relationship to him um and and i say give this relationship to him because there's the sense where we've got to recognize that adam and eve were given to each other and i think the term help meet really goes together there
1: yeah uh verse 20 kind of sticks out to me um i don't know just kind of thinking out loud again but When it says, but for Adam in the New King James, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And that kind of comes at the end of, you know, Adam naming all these animals. And maybe there's a part of this where uh, Adam had time by himself and saw that the animals were in the kind of position that was in their full fulfillment. But maybe God needed Adam to see his need for something more. Um, and maybe that even is important for us, too, is, you know, there is there is a need. Man cannot be independent. Uh, man cannot be isolated. Even being in the image of God, and by man I mean like, you know, man as in males, there's a need for another, and independence is not good. And so it's just just kind of interesting that it almost seems like God helped Adam to see that he had a need for another. Let me just interject, too, that, I mean, you
0: can look at studies on – prisoners that are held in isolation cells and things like that and the damage that that does to people um and i'm not saying that that's you know i'm not saying we need to campaign against that or something like that uh i'm just saying that you know we have a need to have these relationships and when we don't have these proper relationships there's something lacking there um now i want to be very clear i'm not saying that if we don't have if we're not married that we're not going to be pleasing to God. <laughs> uh, just go read Matthew 19, and you'll see that's not the case. The whole point is that we need companionship of some sort, and we can get that through multiple uh, channels. It doesn't have to be exactly what Adam and Eve are, are, are showing here, um, but there's a propriety to these things, and not every not every relationship is like marriage. Um, And what we'll see through the rest of scripture is that this is a very, very special relationship. And so specifically we can see with marriage, a particular kind of relationship here. And, and the way that it's going to look, you see what Adam says to her, you know, says about her bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. uh, The thought that they are one now, that they are one person. Um, You don't have that with every single relationship, um, I can't just be good friends with somebody, and all of a sudden we're the same flesh. Even later on in the, in the book, when we see Jonathan and David being such close—I would say intimate—friends, and yet that phrase is not used about them because they're not—they're not one; they're not together in that same sense. They have an intimate relationship; they're close friends, uh, but but they don't have that same relationship, and. Again, that's not a necessary relationship, but it's an awesome gift that God has given us that we can have these sorts of relationships. And, uh, and so, therefore, Moses is writing here in verse 24, and this kind of ties up the whole concept of, of marriage, a man leaving his father and mother, being joined to his wife, becoming one flesh. Is there the sense here, that once Adam has been created by man and given this companionship, um, there's not the sense necessarily that he that he doesn't need God anymore. But is there the sense here that he maybe is a little bit more complete now that he has this association, that he has this relationship? Yeah, it definitely seems to be there. So, and of course, they're together. They're they're not ashamed in that. Um, is there anything else? Uh, that you want to go into, Bryant, as far as the theme or really what's going
1: on here? Uh, I guess maybe two things. Um, One is the day of rest again in verses one through three. Uh, I'm just going to kind of maybe open a can of worms that I won't go into, maybe just something to put in the back burner and just keep in mind. Uh, And if someone's listening, maybe just think about it. But I'll suggest that every single thing God did after Genesis chapter 2 we're all works of rest. And I think that is the solution to the mystery of Jesus working on the Sabbath. Everything God does is for the goal of giving his creation rest. And when his creation is out of that rest, everything he does is to get it back into that rest. And so Jesus, every single thing Jesus did, everything he thought, all his prayers were all centered on the concepts of Genesis 2, 1 through 3. And I think that's pretty extraordinary. Um, and then the other thing with uh, the man and woman, um, I think about Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul is talking about the role of a husband and wife and says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So it's, it's just really amazing that You know, even with these things that seem to have absolutely no relation to something like Christ and his mission and his ascension and then the church and the nature of the church, the creation in man and woman, what we learn much later is that that was always meant to be a revelation of the relationship of Christ and his bride, which is just astonishing. And uh, with that as well, um, the fact that Christ... Would see a need to be complete with us and not without us is also incredible. Uh, So I just think there's a lot of amazing implications of that that the New Testament writers return to that are so encouraging, so profound.
0: Let's go into our final section here, our final segment of the show, where we try to make application to our lives, and uh, maybe this can help you, as a listener, make some application to your lives over what we've discussed today. Um, There's no point in reading and discussing these things and studying these things if we don't apply them to our lives, um, because then we can properly appreciate these things, allow ourselves to be molded closer to God's image. And as we'll see next next episode, <laughs> we're going to see that 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 image has been uh, really messed with, and, uh, and and ultimately, our whole question is: Are we going to go back to that image? Um, one of the applications that I think we can appreciate is that you know l- let's go back to sort of our uh, uh, what we talked about in the theme section of the fact that God had the love needed to do all of this. First of all, God had the love that was needed to establish a model of rest for humanity. Um, In the immediate section, just as you were talking about just now, Brian, in the immediate context, uh, this helps the Hebrews understand why they have the seventh day and why that that's a day of rest where they're not supposed to work. But, Again, I would call back to the fact that, did God need to rest? I don't think so. I don't think this is something where he's physically resting. I think he's declaring, as you're talking about, a period of rest for him. The creation is done. Uh, He's still going to be, as we're going to see, he's still going to be interacting with humanity. He's still going to be interacting with creation on multiple levels. He's doing all these things. He's in control of all these things. But he establishes this model of rest. And I agree with you, Brian, that it's looking for that, that ultimate rest. Hebrews 4 goes into this, the thought that uh, you know, God has uh, a rest remains for the people of God. Well, what does that mean? I don't think it's talking about a day and, and I think that's again what Jesus is emphasizing. It's not about the day. It's about whether or not you're doing the right thing. It's about getting into that rest. And, and again, the the author in Hebrews four is saying, let's not, you know, let's labor to enter into that rest. Let's make sure we're ready for that rest. So that's the that's the true Sabbath rest that we're looking for. We're not looking for a day. We're looking for eternity with God. And so that's what we need to be looking for. Um, another thing that we need to look at here is that God had the love needed to create mankind. This is arguably the most sophisticated creature that he that he has created. Um, we have the ability to reason and think and logistically consider things in ways that animals really don't have. Uh, in many ways, animals work on instinct; they're they're programmed in multiple ways. And someone says, "Well, my dog, you know, my dog has a soul. My cat has a soul. Well, maybe, <laughs> uh, but but I'm not even really going to speak toward that because the Bible tells us that I'm made in His image." it doesn't say that about the animals. It doesn't say that about the creatures. It doesn't say that about the fish. Um, It says that about man. And so we're made in his image, chapter 1, verse 27. And so we're to conform to that image ultimately. Also, in his love, he gave man a place to live. He established boundaries for him. He provided companionship. All this was governed by his love and uh, and his grace. And again, if we appreciate more of who he is, then we'll appreciate these good things. Um, And one other thing we might recognize, God gives us life and breath and purpose and boundaries. He gives us all these things. Even if you don't know about God's boundaries, those boundaries still apply to you. I'll just use, uh, I'm in Mississippi, I'll use a Mississippi example, right? When a calf is born, you know, that little calf is not going to know about the fences, in whatever farm that calf is and it's not gonna it's not gonna know about those fences until it's grown up a little bit more and it comes to interact with those fences um there was one time i was on my grandpa's farm there was a calf that got tied up got wrapped up in the barbed wire fence and you know he didn't she what it (laughs) i don't even know but it, it didn't know enough really to escape that And it needed help to get through that. It needed help to get out of there. And so, are we working on figuring these things out? You know, Paul writes in Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, Paul's not saying there that we just decide how we're going to be saved and we work it out on our own. It means that we seek and we strive and we say, you know, what is the purpose of all this? Why am I here? What, what do I need to do in my life to make sure that I have the assurance of salvation, that I have the blood of Christ cleansing me from my sins? And so uh, ultimately, that's one of the things that we can see. And then, you know, one of the final things I had here is we can, it's possible for us to have no shame just as Adam and Eve had no shame. Now, that doesn't mean we go around naked, <laughs> but it does mean that in Romans, for example, in Romans 1, 16, 17, we do not have shame about what God has given us. I think that's the ultimate thing because uh, Paul says there in Romans 1, 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The idea that if we have a relationship with God, if we are calling him Lord, if he is Lord of our life, we have no reason to be ashamed. Even if people
1: <clears throat> may talk down to us,
0: we have no reason to be ashamed.
1: Yeah, for just uh, to even bounce off of that, uh, what you just read in Romans, you know, the good news of the gospel is we can not only get into a position like this that we just read about, but it's even better. And I think that's a part of Jesus's message, even while he lived on earth and and taught in his ministry, that the invitation we're being extended is not just to be in the Garden of Eden, but it's to be in a place that is so far beyond the glory and the beauty and the joy of that garden that it can't be described or seen or portrayed, even with words, as amazing as words can portray things, and so when we read this, if there's some kind of hungering or longing, you know, thinking like, wow, you know, that just really sounds amazing. Well, yes, but not nearly as amazing as the invitation we are extended in the gospel very freely. Uh, so definitely an application, you know, it just magnifies the beauty of the gospel and the desire we should have to in every way conform to the glory of the image of God and to know his grace, to know his love and to, to crave to crave his righteousness and to be filled by what he, what he And really to gives. fulfill the purpose that he's
0: made us for. And I think that purpose, you know, in some ways is still there. Um, we're to be, especially in terms of creation, I think there's, it's a biblical thought that we need to be stewards mm-hmm. um, of creation. Adam was set up as a steward. He's like, Hey, you keep this garden. And even the sense, I don't know what your thoughts are about this. Again, this may open up a can of worms. But what do you think about the possibility that Eden, the Garden of Eden, is just simply... um, I know we don't want to get too far into figurative speech here. But uh, the possibility that I've heard before of the garden almost being representative of the the whole world at that time. Um, And what we see later on is not so much the leaving uh you know adam and eve leaving a place as you know a place that we can get back to it's not so much that but it's it's the distinction is the difference it's the beginning of that decay of creation um that's just an idea just a thought maybe maybe that was irresponsible to throw out there but uh i mean i do think we have a literal place talked about here don't get me wrong but, uh, but I think overall, the, the concept is that we can have this relationship with God. And even now, it's not dependent upon a place. It's not dependent upon uh, time or things like that. Uh, it's a relationship with the Creator. And uh, how awesome is it that we can call Him the Lord God and do so in a perfected, cleansed, uh, righteous state, and, uh, I should say as well to our listeners, if you have any questions about some of the things that we're referring to or talking about, please, please contact us, um, walking through the book at protonmail.com walking through the book at protonmail.com. But, uh, we appreciate so much your time, uh, investment of listening today. And we hope that this has been useful
1: for you. Uh, Bryant, do you have any closing thoughts? Nothing besides what you said. Uh, Very, very edifying, and I sincerely hope that uh, anyone listening was edified by the hearing of the Word as we were. Very good. We invite
0: you to be with us again in the next episode, where, Lord willing, we will discuss Genesis chapter 3.